Welcome to the Friday edition of Transformation Radio. And now we begin our reading today in the New Testament. We'll be reading from the book of Matthew, chapter 11, verses 7 through 30. We'll see here that no person ever fulfilled his God-given purpose better than John. Yet in God's coming kingdom, all members will have a greater spiritual heritage than John because they will have seen and known Christ in his finished work on the cross. Jesus mentions two kinds of people in this prayer that we'll read here today in Scripture. The wise and clever, arrogant in their own knowledge, and the childlike, humbly open to receive the truth of God's Word. Are you wise in your own eyes? Or do you seek the truth in childlike faith, realizing that only God holds all the answers? In the Old Testament, no means more than knowledge. It implies an intimate relationship. The communion between God the Father and God the Son is the core of their relationship. For anyone else to know God, God must reveal Himself to that person by the Son's choice. How fortunate we are that Jesus has clearly revealed God to us, as well as His truth and how we can know Him. All right, with that, let's begin our reading today, here in the New Testament. January 16th, the New Testament. Matthew chapter 11, verses 7 through 30. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began talking about him to the crowds. What kind of man did you go into the wilderness to see? Was he a weak reed, swayed by every breath of wind? Or were you expecting to see a man dressed in expensive clothes? No, people with expensive clothes live in palaces. Were you looking for a prophet? Yes, and he is more than a prophet. John is the man to whom the Scriptures refer when they say, Look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way before you. I tell you the truth, of all who have ever lived, none is greater than John the Baptist. Yet even the least person in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he is. And from the time John the Baptist began preaching until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, and violent people are attacking it. For before John came, all the prophets and the law of Moses looked forward to this present time. And if you are willing to accept what I say, he is Elijah, the one the prophet said would come. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. To what can I compare this generation? It is like children playing a game in the public square. They complain to their friends. We played wedding songs, and you didn't dance. So he played funeral songs, and you didn't mourn. For John didn't spend his time eating and drinking, and you say, He's possessed by a demon. The Son of Man, on the other hand, feasts and drinks, and you say, He's a glutton and a drunkard, and a friend of tax collectors and other sinners. But wisdom is shown to be right by its results. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns where he had done so many of his miracles, because they hadn't repented of their sins and turned to God. What sorrow awaits you, Chorazin and Bethsaida! For if the miracles I did in you had been done in wicked Tyre and Sidon, their people would have repented of their sins long ago, clothing themselves in burlap and throwing ashes on their heads to show their remorse. I tell you, Tyre and Sidon will be better off on Judgment Day than you. And you people of Capernaum, Will you be honored in heaven? No. You will go down to the place of the dead. For if the miracles I did for you had been done in wicked Sodom, it would still be here today. 
I tell you, even Sodom will be better off on Judgment Day than you. At that time Jesus prayed this prayer, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, thank you for hiding these things from those who think themselves wise and clever, and for revealing them to the childlike. Yes, Father, it pleased you to do it this way. My Father has entrusted everything to me. No one truly knows the Son except the Father, and no one truly knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Then Jesus said, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. Psalm 14, verses 1 through 7. The true atheist is either foolish or wicked. Foolish because he ignores the evidence that God exists, or wicked because he refuses to live by God's truths. We become atheists in practice when we rely more on ourselves than on God. The fools mentioned here are aggressively perverse in their actions. To speak in direct defiance of God is utterly foolish according to the Bible. Now, no one but God is perfect, of course. All of us stand guilty before Him and need His forgiveness. No matter how well we perform or how much we achieve compared to others, none of us can boast of His or her goodness when compared to God's standard. God not only expects us to obey His laws, but He wants us to love Him with all our heart. No one except Jesus Christ has done that perfectly. Now, because we fall short, we must turn to Christ to save us. Have you asked Him to save you? Psalm 14, verses 1 through 7. For the choir director, a psalm of David. Only fools say in their hearts, there is no God. They are corrupt and their actions are evil. Not one of them does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the entire human race. He looks to see if anyone is truly wise, if anyone seeks God. But no, all have turned away, all have become corrupt. No one does good, not a single one. Will those who do evil never learn? They eat up my people like bread, and wouldn't think of praying to the Lord. Terror will grip them, for God is with those who obey Him. The wicked frustrate the plans of the oppressed, but the Lord will protect His people. Who will come from Mount Zion to rescue Israel? When the Lord restores His people, Jacob will shout with joy, and Israel will rejoice. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. By wisdom the Lord founded the earth. By understanding He created the heavens. By His knowledge the deep fountains of the earth burst forth, and the dew settles beneath the night sky. Hey, it's Zach Pruitt here with Transformation Radio. Just a reminder that Monday is Orientation Day at the Refuge Ministries. If you or anybody you know is struggling with addiction, homelessness, or hopelessness, come to the Hilltop Lutheran Church located at 12 South Terrace Avenue in Columbus at 10 a.m. on Monday. Please call 614-991-0131 or visit our website at menslivechanged.com. Dot org for more information. 
Thanks for listening to Transformation Radio, and have a blessed day. The following audio is from The Refuge Church. More information about The Refuge Church is available at therefugechurch.org. Well, last week, um, we continued on looking at Luke 15 and, and kind of dissecting this, this parable. But we, we discussed really in detail the different audiences that were present um, when Jesus told the parable. Um, because he, basically Luke 15, as you, as you probably know, consists of three parables, and we kind of looked at the first two, and, and from what we know is that there were sinners gathering around Christ, right? There was these sinners gathering and drawing near, the text says, and the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious people, they were grumbling. They didn't like that all too much. They were, they were you know, probably thinking, oh, look, there's Jesus hanging out with the, with the unclean folks again. He's probably just telling them what they want to hear. And so this is the setting. Jesus begins to tell these parables. And, and last week, as we read the first two, we see how Jesus totally, radically changes our categories for who God is, for what sin is, and for what salvation is. And so today we're going to read the third parable. And so if you want to go ahead and turn to uh, Luke 15, we're going to be reading from uh, verses 11 through 32. So I'll go ahead and read that. And he said, this is Jesus speaking, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he'd spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they begin to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked, what these thi- and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. 
But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So this is the word of the Lord. And what, what we know is that this, this parable has been commonly called the parable of the prodigal son. But from what we just read and what we've heard Keller say and what we've said the past few weeks is that we know now that rightfully said the parable should be called the parable of the two lost sons. Because it's not just the young son that's lost. It's also the elder son. So both of them are lost. So the first thing let's look at this morning is this request. The request in and of itself. So verses 11 11 and 12a says, And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. Now, what we have to understand here is is the sinners, the religious leaders were, were, were listening to him. But more specifically, Jesus was speaking. He was addressing these to the Pharisees in specific. And this would have been absolutely shocking to them. The request in and of itself would have been almost absurd, I think. Almost absurd because the younger son comes to the father and basically says, give me my inheritance and I want it now. Give me my inheritance and I want it now. And see, what we know is that back then, yeah, there would have been an inheritance for the sons. Uh, the older son would have inherited two-thirds, two-thirds of the family estate and the younger son would have inherited one-third of the family estate. But, but this always happened when the father died. This always happened when the father died. Therefore, therefore the request in and of itself, it's extremely disrespectful. The request is extremely disrespectful. It's even more than that. It's unbelievable because in effect, what's happening is the son is basically, is basically wishing his father dead. Give me what's mine. I don't want you. I want your things and I want it now. Now, you know, we could imagine at this request, maybe the father riding his donkey off to the, off to the local bank and taking out some cash. But this isn't the case. Because what we know is that during this time, your wealth was largely tied to your land. And your land was a part of you. Your land was much more important to the folks back then than we might imagine today. It was, your land was your place. Your land was your home. It was, it was your value. And so the father would have had to sell off um, a part of the family estate. He would have had to go through the whole ordeal of valuing everything and, and figuring out what a third of, of all of it would have, uh, would have been, what the inheritance actually was. And this would have been a difficult and tedious process, right? Additionally, Keller makes us aware of the fact that, and rightfully so, that the Greek word used here when it says property is actually the word bios, which means life. And so in effect, uh, what we can interpret is that this as is, Father, give me the share of your life that's coming to me. And so what, what we have to see here 
is that this isn't just a relational blow between the younger son and the father. This affects the whole family. It changed the whole family's economic, economic status. It changed the whole family's status amongst the community. The father would have had to go off and sell a portion of the estate and so on and so forth. So this was no small request. It was overwhelmingly disrespectful. It was overwhelmingly offensive and harmful to the family. So I think one of the things that we should ask ourselves is, why would the younger son make such a request? Why would the younger son make such a request? And Keller remarks, Keller remarks that in his confessions, Augustine, uh, probably one of the most influential uh, classical theologians from the third century, who has much more influence on the church today than, you, than we could ever imagine, gives us a theory of why we do what we do. Why we do what we do. And especially why we sin. So he makes this startling observation. And this will be on the screen. So this is Augustine. A man has murdered another man. What was his motive? Either he desired his wife or his property, or else he would steal to support himself, or else he um, he was afraid of losing something to him, or else, having been injured, he was burning to be revenged. And then Keller kind of speaks into this. He says, Augustine goes on to say that even a murderer murders because he loves something. He loves romance or wealth or his reputation or something else too much, inordinately, more than God. And that's why he murders. And then he makes this, I think, beautiful observation. Well, not beautiful, but but very, very um, profound. He says, our hearts are distorted by disordered loves. We love, rest our hearts in, and look to things to give us the joy and meaning that only the Lord can give. The younger son may have lived with his father and may even have obeyed his father, but he didn't love his father. The thing he loved ultimately was his father's things, not his father. His heart was set on the wealth and on the comfort and on freedom and the status that wealth would bring. His father was just a means to an end. Now, however, his patience was over. He knew that the request would be like a knife in his father's heart, but he obviously didn't care. Interesting, right? So why do we do what we do? Well, from what Keller kind of unpacks from Augustine is that our hearts, what does he say? Our hearts are distorted by disordered loves. Such an elegant way to put it. What does that mean? It means we love, we rest our hearts in, we look to things to give us joy and meaning that only the Lord can give. This is the case for you and I, and this is the case for the younger son in this parable. So imagine with me how scandalous this request from the son actually is. Imagine, can you imagine your son or daughter making such a request and how it would break your heart? Father, mother, I want, I want your things and not you. I wish you dead so that I could have your stuff. So it's in the request that we get to see a glimpse of the lostness It's in the request that we get to see a glimpse of the rebelliousness of the younger son. We see how the younger son's request is tearing the family apart. It's breaking the father's heart. 
It's, he's disrespecting his father. He's disregarding anyone else but himself. Overwhelmingly disrespectful, just absurd. And what we're going to discuss more next week is that although the two sons look very different externally, they're both in fact lost. The younger son goes off and lives a life of wild living, right? Does whatever he wants, very bohemian. A lot of promiscuity. While the elder brother stays home and obeys the dad, right? But what's, what's, what is so interesting is that yet, we'll see how the, the elder son also rejects the father. And actually, he doesn't love the father because of his obedience. That's what's so startling about this text is the younger son, it's obvious, right? He, he disrespects, he doesn't love the father because of all this wild living, because of, you know, he asks for inheritance, he basically wishes his father dead. But the elder son actually disrespects the father, actually doesn't want the father, actually doesn't really care for the father because of his obedience. So we'll explain how the, how the elder brother shows that he's been obeying the father to get his things, not because he loves him, since he's willing to put him to shame. Both the older and the younger sons love the father's things and not the father. So we see the younger son's insanely disrespectful, insanely hurtful, insanely selfish request. Now, how does the father respond? How does this father respond? Well, let's look at 12, uh, the second half of verse 12 and then 20 through 24. Second half of verse 12 says, it, all, it just goes right to it. It says, and he divided his property between them. And then 20, and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Look at this remarkable response. We've been talking about how the request was so scandalous, but he says he divided the property between them. Again, the word property uh, is really the Greek word bios, which means life. So it says he divided his life between them. This would have, if, if the request wasn't shocking enough, the response to, in this parable to the people listening to Jesus would have been absolutely absurd. Absolutely incredible. The listeners would have assumed that because of the younger son's request, the father, they assumed that he would have responded in contempt, maybe even physical force, but most certainly with absolute outrage. Because their wealth, you know, as we said, their wealth was tied to their land. In this culture, I mean, we have some of it in our culture, but not much. But in this culture, there was a high, high respect and high regard to your elders. Especially the owner of the estate. And so here we see the father giving the son what he asks for. Selling off the family land. 
which in turn, he knows this, it's going to be an absolute detriment to the, to the family name. An absolute detriment to the family's status. The older son, as we see later in the, in the text, but the older son and really anyone else in the community would have thought that the father was being foolish, was being absurd, that he'd lost his mind by giving the son what he asked for. So why did he do it? Why did the father do it? How was he not overcome with anger? Why would the father put up with so much disrespect? Well, let's think about this. If the father had become enraged, if the father had become bitter, and had perhaps, you know, beaten the younger brother, beaten his his young son, or done something else severe to him, no restoration would have ever happened. The father's heart would have been too hardened to ever receive him back, and the son probably would have never expected or wanted the father to take him back. So this is, this is the, the crazy beauty of it, is that by, by bearing the agony and pain of his son's sin himself, instead of taking revenge, instead of paying the son back by inflicting pain on him or disowning him, the father kept the door open in the relationship. The father was willing to suffer for the sin of his son so that someday reconciliation might be possible. Do you see this? The father's willingly bearing all the shame, bearing all the ridicule. He's bearing all the loss with no retaliation. There's not even a sign of retaliation in this parable in hopes that someday the relationship may be restored. We don't even have a, have a category for this because we don't respond this way. The Father's deeply wise and deeply caring and overwhelmingly loving. I mean, the Father sees the big picture, if you will. The Father's not blinded by anger and rage. He's not blinded by overwhelming, you know, by, by, the, by the offenses, by the selfishness, by the rebellion, by the betrayal that his younger son is displaying. So, so lastly, what, what difference does this make for us? What difference does this make for us? First, it means that, that whether we're irreligious, younger brother types, or moral, religious, elder brother types, we have a problem with what Augustine calls inordinate love, or idols of the heart. doesn't matter which, which category. doesn't matter which side we fall on. We have, we have problems with these inordinate loves. See, because many of us are like the elder brother. Many of us, most people that go to church, I would say. Uh, we, we may obey all the rules, but our real heart and passion is something else. Maybe it's our career, or maybe it's making money, or maybe it's your children, or maybe it's peer acceptance. And what many of us need to realize is that usually we replace God with good things. 
what Augustine called inordinate love. So you could call it a functional savior. Things we're really trying to be fulfilled by besides God himself. And we can be very religious and do this. We can be very moral and do this. We can appear to have it all together and do this. We attempt to find ultimate peace from our spouse, and in turn, we crush them under the weight of our soul. What do I mean? I mean, they can't, they, our spouse can't fulfill all of our longings and desires. Because if our functional Savior is our spouse, then when they inevitably mess up, if they're our functional Savior, then it won't just, you know, hurt our feelings. It'll crush us. We'll despair. We'll turn to something else. Why do affairs happen? When, when you attempt to make your kids or your family your functional Savior, you'll not be able to just simply enjoy them as a gift from God. You'll constantly be attempting to find your worth and your identity from them. And you can't. You'll crush them and you'll lose your soul. So what, what am I saying here? What I'm trying to say is that only God can bear the full weight of your soul. Only if you give your life over to God can you appropriately love all of the other good things in your life. Why? Because you're not trying to find your identity and your hope from them. So ask yourself this morning, what do I care about? What do I care about? Uh, what, what do I love? When I daydream, what, what, are the, what are the objects of my affections? Where do I spend my energy? What do I cherish? What do I hope for? What am I trying to find value from? What am I living for? And is it towards God? What am I running towards? What am I running from? Have you written off Christianity without understanding Christianity? Because if anything has a controlling position in your heart, if anything is more important to your happiness than God, then that thing is a God to you. Or an inordinate love, as Augustine says. So, just so, so don't beat yourself up in this moment. Just recognize these things for what they are. Do you see them in your heart and your life? Most often they're the things that you're most passionate about or they're the things that you most fear. Once we see these things for what they are, what, what, can, we do, what can be done about them? Well, first we have to know that we're made by God and we're made for God. Everywhere else might be a decent place, but it's not home, as Keller says. The second difference this makes for us is it means that our Lord, and this is beautiful. So what difference does this make? The second, re, the second thing is it means that our Lord has done for us what the Father in this parable did for his Son. That God has done for us what the Father in this parable did for his Son. When God came into the world, we would have expected him to come in wrath. 
right? Just logically, if we're sinners and, and you know, said by because of sin we deserve punishment, then, then we would have expected God to come in wrath, to appear and drive us out with physical blows and anger. Is that what the gospel teaches? No. He didn't do this. He didn't come with a sword in his hand, but he came with nails in his hands. He didn't come to bring judgment. He came to bear judgment. Jesus went to the cross in weakness, and there, voluntarily, willingly, his life was literally torn apart. And for his only property left, his garment, they cast lots. But he did it so that when we repent, like the younger son ultimately ends up doing, forgiveness and reconciliation is available for you and I. And so how, how does this help us? How does understanding this help us when it comes to our inordinate loves, when it comes to our idols, when it comes to our functional saviors? Well, objectively, it means that there's real, true forgiveness for them. It means that our guilt can be dealt with because of Jesus' blood, because of the atonement, as theologians call it, because of the cross, because of Jesus' sinless life. When you put your faith in Christ, when you follow him, when you turn and repent of your sins, God forgives you of your idolatries, not because you're awesome and God wants you on his team, but because of what Jesus Christ has done through his life, death, burial, and resurrection. Now, subjectively, when we see the absolute beauty of what Jesus has done for us, it captures our hearts. When we understand the gospel, when we really understand the gospel, it captures our hearts. Money can't die for us. Popularity can't die for us. And there's nothing more beautiful in all of reality than the picture of a perfectly happy being leaving all the bliss of heaven and sacrificing everything for the sake of a rebellious, undeserving, and ungrateful people. And so the more I think we look at Jesus doing all these things, the more that we're going to love him above anything or anyone else. He'll capture your heart so that nothing matters more than he does. When you see what he's done for you, it makes, when you really see it, when you really understand it, when it really comes home, then what ends up happening is in the worst, the worst times become bearable. And then all the good things in your life, you'll actually be able to enjoy those things because you won't be trying to find your value and your worth in them. So again, my hope for you this morning, our hope for you this morning, is for you to see that God is the Father in this parable. Answering your rebellion with the gracious opportunity of forgiveness and welcoming you back home. Because we all know that we've sinned. We all know that we've fallen short of God's holy standard. We've all been unfaithful. We've all been rebellious. We've all gone our own way. And, in, and God, in mercy, offers us himself. And so the exhortation is, put your faith in Jesus. Commit to a local church. 
and engage in Christian community. Let's pray. Jesus, again, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel, the good news of, of, of you, God. Sometimes, sometimes I think what keeps us from you is um, some form of pride, self-pity. We think we don't deserve it. And God, if that's anyone this morning, I pray that they would see that that's why you went to the cross. That's why you went to the cross. I think what keeps us from you, it's, it's, it's really pride if we think that we don't deserve it because somehow we think we've got to earn it. And the Bible properly understood, we're never going to earn it. I'm not good. I don't care. Like Isaiah talks about how our, our, our good works are like filthy rags. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't pursue you. That doesn't mean we should long to be like you. That doesn't mean we shouldn't grow in Christ-likeness. But what it means is on our best day, we don't cut it. We needed your perfection. And so I just pray this morning that, Lord, your loving, gracious, merciful presence would convict us, but also um, for those that are believers would assure us of our hope. For those that are um, either the either the younger son who's just licentious and doing whatever, I just pray that Lord, they would be drawn to put their faith in you and begin the process of, of being a follower of Christ. Many of us just need to be awakened again, Lord. This isn't a religious um, religion being, you know, I obey God and, and, I, and, and therefore he accepts me. That's not the gospel. The gospel is in response to God's goodness. I'm accepted, therefore I obey. God, we see that all throughout your scriptures in the Exodus, you know, you didn't, you didn't deliver... You know, you, you didn't tell Israel, hey, here's the Ten Commandments, do all of them perfectly, and then I'll take you out of Egypt. You delivered them out of Egypt, and then you gave them the law. So the offer on the table for all of us is that no matter how we came in here, no matter how jacked up we are, no matter how all our inordinate loves, all of our sins, all of our idols, some of us were so good and we think that that's why you love us. Man, God, you know, I'm on the varsity team because I'm great for God. That's not true. And so I, I pray that despite wherever we are, that we put our faith in you, that we'd repent of our self-righteousness, that we'd repent of our licentiousness, that we'd repent of wherever we find ourselves on that spectrum, and that you would be glorified. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from The Refuge Church. For more information about The Refuge Church, please visit therefugechurch.org.